La Mesa prison in Tijuana is home to 6,000 6, of Mexico's worst criminals and one short little nun. Mother Antonio has fought for the rights of the people that are in the La Mesa prison, made sure they had medicine and clean water. They love her. They call her mother, and she calls them her sons. Each night when the sun goes down, 6,000 hardened criminals make La Mesa prison their home, as well as Mother Antonio. She lives in a small little cell where she has a ministry there. Now, before moving to the prison in 1977, here was Mary Brenner Clark, lived in Beverly Hills. And she was a Christian, and she said, I have this experience, I have this skill, I have uh, money that I've accumulated, I want to do something that matters for Jesus. And so she decided to go all in with her faith, led her to move into the prison. And um, at one point, however, a riot broke out, and she wasn't there. The inmates uh, staged a revolt, um, uh, took over uh, a number of um, uh, police officers, took them as hostages, and uh, when Mother Antonia fell out about it, she, she went to the prison immediately, and she was begging the police officers to let her in. There was gunfire everywhere, smokes going everywhere. The police were like, absolutely not. You're going to get hurt. There's no way we're going to let you into that prison. And she demanded it, and finally, they let her into the prison. She looked for the most influential inmate in the prison, and she said out loud, it's not right that you're locked up here hungry and thirsty. You're malnourished. We can take care of those things. I want to fight for you. I will help you, but you first have to give me your guns. He told her, Mother, as soon as we heard your voice, everybody dropped their guns. Our mission is to make more and better disciples, and that means when I grew up um, in going to church as a kid, it was a group of very, very nice people. It was a nice church. They were wonderful people. I'm thankful for my friendships there. But I don't want to just go to church. Jesus doesn't want us to simply to come on Sunday to church. Jesus has a vision where as his disciples, they are going to be known as the people, as it says in the book of Acts, that these are the people that up in the world. These are the people who aren't willing to settle for the status quo, and we're going to do something about it. This is why today we're concluding um, this series that we're calling Cannonball, and today we're going to make our commitments for the Cannonball Generosity Initiative. Have you seen this meme? I love this meme. When you ask your drama queen teenager to please empty the dishwasher. Um, you know, how many of you have actually done that with your kids, right? You've asked them to do something, and that's how they respond. That's what our culture teaches us to do, right? We're going to do the bare minimum. We're not going to go and do a lot of, we're not going to exert a lot of time and a lot of energy, really honestly, to help other people unless someone can actually notice it. I remember I was looking in the newspaper recently, and there was this company that had like 100 employees, and the CEO of this company said, the company is going to donate $1,000, for this one initiative. And that's great, but just 
think about the logic of that. Here's the CEO of this company that could, quite frankly, have given a $2 million gift, and they feel it necessary to call in the reporters and have a photo taken with a six-foot-long $1,000 check. I can tell you about single moms here who have given $14,000 to build two homes in Haiti by herself, and no one called in the Calvary and the video cameras and the pictures and talked about it on the television. She did it, and we have done similar things with our resources and our time and our energy because we're disciples of Jesus, and we don't want to claim for it because we know it's not about us. Now, Cannonball has two different goals. Number one is 100% participation. We want everybody in this room to make a jump and do a cannonball over the next 24 months. The second goal is that we want to raise the money for the next 24 months for the three waves that we're going to do. We're going to have a wave of local impact, a wave of international impact, and a wave of future impact. One of my favorite stories is by Bob Goff. You know our friend Bob Goff? We worked with him um, over the years. We rescued a village of 600 people in northern Iraq with Bob Goff. Uh, Bob Goff came in here and spoke. Uh, we worked with his organization, Love Does, to um, build a safe home in Uganda um, uh, for girls who are sex trafficked there. Bob Goff, in his book, Love Does, tells this great story. Bob Goff says that when I was a teenager, man, I was... I was pretty messed up. I was searching. I was hurting. I was confused. And I just went over to, to um, and found out where my youth pastor lived. So I went and I knocked on his door. And he came to the door and he said, hey, man, how are you? He said, man, I just really need someone to talk to. What are you doing today? And he said, hold on. And Bob said that he went inside and he could hear him talking to someone there. And then he came out with some hiking gear, two backpacks, some poles, and some food. And they went hiking all day. Bob says, I look back on that day as one of the days that changed my life, where that person just invested in me. Many of you can think of men and women through the years that have invested you in that way that took of time and energy to help you. Bob Goff says, at the end of the day, they came back to his place, and he said, do you want to come in? Why don't you come on in? So Bob says, here I am, a teenager. He invites me to come in, and when I came in, there were balloons and gifts all throughout the apartment. And he said, do you want to meet my wife? And it, Bob, it, Bob said, it hit me. Yesterday was his wedding day. He was getting ready to leave for his honeymoon. But he was willing to take the time to say, hey, you know what? I want to invest it in this kid. How many of us want to be that kind of person? To be the kind of person we're willing to look back and say, I was willing to take some risks and invest my life even though it cost me something. What I want to do before we make our commitments, I want to tell you this crazy, confusing story that Jesus told. Jesus' only investment advice was the story and you read it, and you're like, what does that mean? Jesus said, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
Now, last year we talked about where Jesus lived. It's an area called where the Sea of Galilee is. It's called Lower Galilee. Roughly 180,000 people lived there. And the top 2% of people owned almost all the land. And so these wealthy people that owned hundreds and thousands of acres of estates, they didn't live out in the boonies. They lived in one of three cities. Right on the lake of the Sea of Galilee was a town called Tiberias. Jerusalem to the south, and close to where Jesus grew up was a town called Sepphoris. And so what happened is these people would own these massive estates with thousands of acres, but they would live in the city, and what they would do is they would hire someone to stay there and manage it. And so Jesus' story says, there was a rich man who's, man, he's, who's a rich man who's staying in Tiberias, whose manager out in the boondocks of his estate it said, was accused of wasting his possessions. And so this rich man called in the manager. He said, I want you to meet me over here in Tiberias. And so he came all the way to Tiberias, and he says, what, we, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And so the manager then goes back to the estate, and he calls all the people that owe this rich man a lot of money. It says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know that what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. I've got a bright idea. And so then he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down. I want you to cut it in half, make it 450. But I'm getting fired tomorrow. And when I get fired, I'm going to come back to you. you know, I'm lying in your pockets right now. You're going to take care of me, right? You're going you're to bring me into your house. You're going to give me some food. You're going to take care of me, right? He said, yeah, I promise you. He said, go ahead, cut your bill in half. Now, olives were an important part of the economy, Right? People grew olives all over the place. Where did Jesus go? He went to pray on the what? Come on, you with me? Mount of Olives, right? They made olive oil from crushing olives in a press. This is an olive press. I don't know how many of you like olive oil. If you've cooked with olive oil, whenever you've purchased extra virgin olive oil, what that means is the olives will be placed in this bowl. A donkey will be on the other side. And the first time that it goes around and crushes the olives, the oil will come out the side and they'll collect it. That's called the first press. The first press is the first time it goes. But people who are making olive oil are like, people will still buy this even if it isn't the good stuff. So after it's gone around three or four times, it's still getting oil. But that's the cheap stuff you get at the discount rack on Giant, right? Not the good extra virgin first press olive oil. Um, Olive oil is something that in the first century, people didn't take a lot of baths. And so they would take olive oil, and instead of taking a bath, they would rub olive oil on their body, and it would make them smell better. We're a, a friendly church here, so for those of you who are new, don't get freaked out. I want you to lean over and sniff the person next to you. Can you do that? <laughs> Just give them a big sniff. Just lean over. Tell me how they smell. Are they smelling good or are they not smelling good? It, did anybody basically rub oil, olive oil all over their body? 
this morning. One olive tree would produce 20 gallons of oil. And so we're talking 950 gallons. We're talking a substantial amount of money that this guy got his, his, when his guy got his bill cut in half. Second guy, he said, how much do you owe? He said, oh, man, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your bill and make it 800. New Testament scholar John Kloppenberg said that the amount of land it would have taken to grow this amount of wheat would have been 20 times the average family lot. In other words, we know that the average family lot in the time of Jesus was roughly five acres. A family could make a living on a family lot of five acres. So the amount of wheat that he cut from this guy's bill was the amount of wheat that was produced on 100 acres of land. This is a substantial amount of money. And so verse 8 tells us the guy that owned all of this was sitting in Tiberias. He heard about it, went to his property up there in Lower Galilee, walked in, saw the manager, and it said the master beat him, threw him into prison, and had him killed. That would have been a common thing. You would at least have, him, you would have brought a bunch of thugs and you would just beat the tar out of this guy. But what does this verse say he did? The master walked up and said, dude, seriously, well done. That was like a brilliant idea. Like you knew I was canning you tomorrow. And you basically went to every single person that I owed me money. And you basically lined your own pockets and made sure that after I fired you today, they were going to welcome me into your house. Now, I'm still firing you. But dude, seriously, that was a brilliant idea. Well done, Jesus said. And then Jesus said, here's the interpretation of this story. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Story's over. Here's my question. What the heck does that mean? Use worldly wealth, right, to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There are three possible explanations, okay? The first is use money to get friends. Like lean over to the person next to you and say, you look like the kind of person that has to buy their friends. You do that, right? Like you're going to, Jesus is saying, you want good financial advice? Use money to buy friends, right? That obviously is not what it means. Number two, use your money to get friends so that when your money runs out, they can Venmo you 500 bucks to get you through the next week, right? That's obviously not what it means either. A third uh, possible uh, observation could be use your money to buy friends, and when you do, you'll earn a place in heaven. Like if you buy friends and people like you, God's going to be like, that guy's a really popular guy. I'm going to let him into heaven because I want to hang out with this person, right? That's obviously not what it means. A lot of people in uh, the Middle Ages thought that's what it meant, and so they bought indulgences. How do we discover what this story means? There are a couple clues. Number one, always look at the context. 
Got to remember, the Gospel of Luke, where this is told, there weren't any chapters or verses. It was just handwritten. And so immediately preceding this story is three stories. So this parable is one of four parables that are told together. The first parable is there's this lady who couldn't find a quarter, and so when her whole family got home at the end of the day, everything in the house was in the front yard. And then she walks out, she's like, hey guys, don't sweat it, I found it. And they're like, what? I'm not putting this stuff back. She said, but I found it, it's a quarter. Another, another one, Jesus said, there's a guy that had a hundred, a hundred sheep, right? And then one of them gets lost, so he leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one, walks back, and everyone's like, where have you been? And you're like, I literally sacrificed all 99 of these to go find this little scrawny one. And they're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. There's a the third, well, third story is there's a guy who has two sons. The first never gets into trouble. The second one takes all of his credit cards and goes to Vegas for two years, has a bash, comes back. He's still completely wasted. When his dad sees him, he runs and does what? Puts him in a headlock, starts beating him, right? Like, you know, and no, doesn't do that. He picks him up and says, my son is now found. Let's have a party. What happened in all three of these stories? Something was lost. The thing that was lost was valuable. The person that went after it to find it was irrational, according to the people of the world. But they did it, and when they found it, it was a celebration. And so the fourth parable, Jesus is saying, now I specifically want to talk about money. We, I'm sending you out to reach people and to find them for the kingdom. I now want to talk about your money. The central idea of the parable is there's a man who uses his shrewdness. A lot of the time when Jesus tells a parable, it's about someone who's not a Christian, who does something bad. And here's what the meaning of the verse is. We're here on earth, and we have money. We have a choice of how we're going to use it. We're to use that money to lead people to Jesus, to go and find the lost coin the lost sheep and the lost son, our lost neighbors, our lost mom and dad, friends and family members who don't know Jesus, people around the world that don't know Jesus. And when we do that, the moment we die, when we get to heaven, there are going to be people standing there going, well done, hugging us and welcoming us into heaven and saying, thank you, I'm here because of your influence. G.S. Graham said this, look at your life as you'll see it on eternity's morning. This is the day you die. When life will all be behind you, what will you and I count on on eternity's morning? Money, no, that will be gone. Never to come back again. Position, that will have passed away forever. Pleasure and ease, no, that will be gone too. There will be two things which we shall value with all of our being on eternity's morning. The first is to know that we have done his will with our lives, and the second will be to know that there are precious souls standing around the throne on the solemn morning that God uses us to have a share in winning. That's what cannonball is for the next 24 months. This is why Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Getting more and more stuff, yeah, it's nice, but it's not the point. The point is none of this stuff gets to go with us. 
We can't take our cars to heaven. I hate automobile maintenance. Wouldn't you agree? Like, I just, it's, I just hate it, so I'm glad we don't have to take cars to heaven. Uh, we can't take refrigerators to heaven. Um, our 401ks don't get to go to heaven. We can't take our homes, our golf clubs, our clothes, stuff that we have in a garage, our offices, patio furniture, your barbecue, grill, not going to heaven, right? Some of you think you're awesome. You're not, let's be honest. Your jewelry, cell phones, your pets, not going to heaven. Now, I know that breaks your heart, but if, if so there's no theology of pets going to heaven, but if heaven wouldn't be heaven without a pet, without your favorite cat or dog or, I don't know, emu or whatever, then I'm sure God will make that heaven for you. But we're all asking, and we're telling you right now, when we get to heaven, we're not cleaning up after your dog, okay? That's just the way it's going to be. I want to um, show you um, uh, some numbers here. The first is a cell phone payment. The average cell phone payment, when you take in taxes and the insurance for the phone, all that kind of stuff, is $80 a month. Now, un undoubtedly, there's going to be someone here that says, I have Cricket Wireless. I don't pay $80 a month. And I'm going to say, be quiet, okay? So the <laughs> average family, I don't know, $250-ish, ish if you take all family and uh, all your unlimited data and that sort of thing, cable and internet, average package is anywhere from $150 to $250, unless you, like, get a lot of the other, other additions and the NFL premier package and all those sorts of things. Electric, anyway, obviously, if you're just by yourself, that could be 50 to 75 bucks. But on average, it's going to be 200 maybe on up. If you get a new car, the average payment for that is going to be $515. Mortgage payment in this area, on average, is going to be anywhere from 2100 on up to five and, and beyond that. Here's my question Is Jesus more important than my cell phone payment? And the answer is what? Of course he's more, cell phone, more important than my cell phone payment. And so what I, the question I want us to ask is, in terms of our giving to make that happen, to reach the people that he wants us to reach, are we giving what we're paying for our cell phone payment? Just starting there. I know when we talk about this, those of you who are brand new, you're like, listen, I've never given anything to a church. And and you're talking about that, and I know this is a step for you, and I get that. But there are a lot of people that are here that can remind, can bring up stories about their first time when they really started to give and being generous and being consistent. And they'll tell you that when we've talked about these scripture verses for the last few weeks about God being generous and providing, that he does. He does provide. And so there's a, it's a difference between closed hands and open hands. When we're closed and we say, I'm not going to give anything, it's all mine, then God can't put anything in our hands. But when we open up our hands and we say, hey, man, everything that I have is yours, you just, you take what you need and you, and you give proportionally to that, since your hands are open, then he can put new resources in there, money and people and opportunities, but he can't do that when our hands are closed. So we're just going to open up our hands with this Cannonball Initiative.
Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.